I'm Max Gunsberg at the University of Liverpool, and I'm here with Gregory Conti at Princeton University, who's going to talk to me about his book, Parliament, the Mirror of the Nation, Representation, Deliberation and Democracy in Victorian Britain, a book which has just come out in the Ideas in Context series at Cambridge University Press. So Greg, thank you for taking the time. And would you mind beginning by telling us a little bit about the background to, to the book? So it started off as a PhD dissertation at Harvard, if I understand it correctly. Yeah, great. Uh, well, thanks, uh, Max, for doing this. Um, and, uh, you know, during the quarantine, I've enjoyed uh, many of the other interviews on this uh, site. Um, yeah, so it did start off as a, um, as a PhD dissertation. It had a long sort of gestation um, because uh, unlike for you guys um, across the pond here you know people enter grad school without necessarily having any idea what they're going to work on mm. and um, that was the case with me uh, and then I think the earliest version of something that uh, resembles this project um, was going to be about uh, sort of broadly speaking uh, managing and dealing with um, diversity in the 19th century and uh, I think my dissertation prospectus claimed that I was going to trace some of these issues across several separate spheres um, like the press and education mm -hmm. and one more I think and then representation um, mm -hmm. and then when I actually wrote the thing um, it, pretty much everything had fallen out except some stuff about uh, the press and toleration and the limits of discussion and representation. And so that was the way it appeared as a dissertation. And then I uh, even cut off the uh, that kind of former category and just had this material about representation. And then that's what I went uh, ahead and expanded uh, into this book. So yeah, there was kind of a, a contraction of the original scope of the thing, uh, but then, uh, really sort of an expansion out of all of these ideas about representation. I had uh, come kind of into contact with just through doing the research. Yeah, fantastic. And in the book, you put a lot of emphasis on the variety of suffrage tradition in, in British constitutional theory and, and history. Um, so could you say a bit about what that is and why it was so important for many Victorians? Uh, yeah, great. So the variety of suffrages is uh, a term that I sort of coined, but picking up from uh, from the authors that I study who do, who do use it. Um, and it's basically what I would say is that the, the main idea of the whole book is that when you arrive at the mid-Victorian period, mm -hmm. um, there's wide buy-in, though, of course, it's disputed and, you know, no, no, no ideal is universal, but there's sort of wide assent to an idea that uh, the House of Commons um, ought to mirror the nation in its diversity and its diverse classes, interests, opinions, and so on. And um, then there, you know, what the book does is try to kind of typologize and trace out different ways of thinking about what it means to have a representative system that mirrors your society uh, accurately. And what I say is that basically what held pole position, the view, um, the particular version or view about what mirroring entails that held pole position 
uh, at, in the mid-Victorian period is this is what I call the variety of suffrages. And um, as I just uh, mentioned before, this is a view that kind of exalts the diversity of classes and interests and upholds the importance of uh, the commons as a deliberative site where the different and competing segments of society uh, air their concerns and kind of try to reach acceptable policy through compromise, contest, and you know, mutual illumination, all of some you know, these good million themes. Um, but it's self-consciously uh, anti-democratic. And yeah. that's one of the interesting things about it. And that's hopefully one of the things that jogs us or disorients us a bit relative to our contemporary assumptions. So we kind of have, in the variety of suffrages, we have the values of diversity, inclusivity, deliberation arrayed on one side against uh, democracy uh, arrayed against it. And the basic reason that they think that is that uh, the variety of suffrages view holds that any uniform set of suffrage rules um, is unacceptable because it produces the dominance of one part of society over a diverse whole. So if all constituencies are alike and uh, there's the same qualifications or lack of qualifications to vote in all of them, they believe you uh, wind up with class rule. So in the case of uh, where there's, uh, say, a very high property threshold in order to vote, and that holds across the whole country, well, they condemn that the variety of suffragists condemn this as oligarchy, right? Then only the wealthy or the landed or what have you uh, will have a say in uh, the assembly. But they equally condemn uh, uniform universal suffrage on the grounds that this produces uh, the hegemony of the working classes. They have the ability to swamp or monopolize the representation in each of these constituencies since they'll be a majority in each constituency. And this they think is a recipe for tyranny, for poor policy because deliberation across competing domains and ideas uh, is foreclosed and all of that. And, um, and what I argue is that, the, you know, this is the view that sort of holds pole position because of England's uh, distinctive constitutional history. So before the first reform act in 1832, the uh, traditional unreformed uh, House of Commons had no real standardized suffrage rules for boroughs at least. Mm. So in some places there was near universal suffrage. We shouldn't exaggerate the number of those places, but in some places there were. In other places there were quite restrictive property qualifications. In other places you vote as a result of uh, being a member of a particular corporation or having the status of a free man and so on. And, uh, and this came to be kind of eulogized. Uh, you already see it in the 18th century um, as uh, the proper way um, to have a representative government. Uh, and um, then after the French Revolution, uh, in, in a contest against sort of Benthamite radicals and other democratic reformers, people really give this a self-consciously um, anti-democratic flavor. And the point is that uh, Britain should retain these organically diverse and inclusive institutions. It's developed mm -hmm. even if they look random or arbitrary in some respect. Uh, they should hold on to that against the recipe of lower class rule um, that uh, democracy would bring. Um, and then after a lot of that diversity is lost in the 1832 Reform Act, which is a kind of standardizing measure, 
And then really the book gets going when I point out that um, in the mid in the mid century, sort of 1848 and after, there's a uh, quite um, there's kind of an efflorescence of thinking about how to reform Parliament further, make mm -hmm. it more inclusive, in particular have more working class representation yes. without falling into these problems of democratic class rule and swamping. And what they do is deliberately reach back to the variety of suffrages kind of ideal in English constitutional history and try to update it and play with it and see it as a kind of um, resource for thinking about how to redesign electoral institutions in such a way that um, by, by means of differentiation in rules and constituency construction and all of that, you can preserve diversity and deliberation. So that's really what a big chunk of, of the book is about. Okay. That's great, Greg. So that gives you a, a very uh, detailed outline of what the book is about and what it's arguing. Um, and following on from that, so one thing we have to mention before, uh, before moving on is uh, the theory of proportional representation, mm -hmm. because you single this out as the major innovation in the theories of representation uh, in the 19th century. And the final part of the book is uh, spending a lot of time on uh, what is known as PR. So could you perhaps say a few words about proportional representation and uh, what, uh, why it was important uh, in, in, the, in this period and yeah, for great. the book? Uh-huh, yeah, so proportional representation, I think, um, well, I think, you know, as you kind of intimated there, uh, it's it is probably the single most important um, constitutional contribution of 19th century, uh, European political thought, to be honest. You know, there, we think of this as an age of uh, coming democracy, but of course there had been uh, democracy in pockets before. Universal suffrage is much, you know, is not a, is not a new thing, though, uh, of course, implementing it on a nationwide scale is, um, uh, you know, a nationwide scale in a modern state is. But um, PR is distinctively, ha you know, um, distinctively and peculiarly, I think, had no antecedents. So a theory of, uh, the theory of proportional representation, as I try to situate it here, is an attempt to um, solve basically, you know, to kind of square the circle between democracy and diversity, right? Um, though, as I point out, a number of the early uh, proportionalist reformers were not Democrats, or at least uh, were only reluctant Democrats, what they saw and appreciated was basically that the variety of suffrages prescription was doomed because in a kind of rationalist, uh, modern reforming age, the idea of, say, treating people, giving, you know, uh, giving, giving the poor the vote in one constituency, but withholding it to those in another is simply not going to fly. Uh, so they think we are, we are, we are going to have to accept uniformity of suffrage yeah. and probably universality of suffrage. And so how do we devise a system that will, uh, guarantee minorities um, seats within uh, and spokesmen within the assembly. And the theory of proportional representation is meant to do that. Uh, and um, it's meant to do that through such innovations as uh, the voluntary constituency. So the idea that um, instead of uh, being in fixed constituencies based usually on one's geographical location, but perhaps based on various corporatist characteristics, you know, voting with your guild for example, as in, uh, you know, the uh, uh, 1799 
estates general in, in France, um, or other kinds of, you know, people have ideas about constituencies based on religion, based on class, based on what education, what have you. Instead of having those fixed prearranged constituencies, uh, constituencies would simply be constructed out of the expression of preferences by the voters. And that's kind of the key insight of proportional representation. And I, I try to sort of talk about both how that um, was contiguous with, consistent with uh, antecedent concerns and the variety of suffrages. You know, they uphold many similar ideas uh, about diversity, inclusivity, the epistemic mm -hmm. benefits of um, including those things uh, within the assembly and then some other affinities uh, between them, but then also the distinctive differences that come from the important technical changes in the way of aggregating and counting votes that uh, proportional representation brings. So uh, distinctive ideas about the liberty of the individual elector uh, come about um, through PR, uh, ideas about voluntary association become important for PR in a way that uh, they couldn't be for the variety of suffrages or for uh, just first past the post, as we would call them now, plurality rule um, uh, Democrats. And uh, then I try to give a sense of the extraordinary moral um, investment that was made in PR and the really, I think, quite stunning range of social uh, and intellectual benefits that its early proponents, notably Thomas Hare and John Stuart Mill, uh, saw as stemming from an implementa uh, implementing the system. And uh, so, you know, PR is something that not, you know, not for your, uh, you know, not in your country right now, although for European elections and for some other things. But, uh, you know, most of the Anglophone world has managed to resist it, but most of the rest of the world hasn't. They have various versions of PR. It's a system that's uh, with us today, even if not in the form that the Victorian thinkers um, I discuss would have advocated. Uh, but it's quite different, you know, when, when one sees the original aspirations and hopes that uh, they all had for it, uh, and then look at what we think the purpose of PR is today, what we hope to get out of it, uh, see that we're inhabiting, I think, quite different, quite different moral uh, universes. In, on that matter. So um, yeah, that's, I guess, uh, a kind of quick and dirty account of, of... Yeah, no, but that's that's great, Greg. Thank you so much. So you've already started to move in the direction I wanted to go in next, um, since you've been talking about the legacy of PR um, and uh, and the impact of it. So, so um, many books, of course, in the history of political thought engage with both political theory and history although very often they lean strongly in, in one direction. Uh, and on the one hand, your book is very historical, um, but at the same time, it's also intended as a contribution to political theory. And you professionally, you, you work in a politics department. Mm. Um, so I would like to invite you to reflect a little bit about um, this intersection, reflect, reflect on this intersection between history and political theory. Uh, and I would like to do that by reading a sentence from, from the introduction to the book. So you're right in the beginning of the book. Um, a major reason to plunge deeply into the historical context of political thought is precisely, if paradoxically, because one is aiming to produce a piece of writing that is not solely of historical value, end of quote. So could you please expand, expand a little bit on this quote for us, Greg? 
sure, I can try. Uh, uh, I mean, I kind of like the uh, oracular sound of that. I'm not sure that I can uh, give give uh, further illumination. But I, I no, I mean, um, I mean, just a, a couple of quick comments. Um, I mean, you're, you're, I'm in a politics department. Um, I always have been, although I guess I was an English major as an undergrad. I have no disciplinary pedigree within history um, and uh, haven't at any stage of my uh, career. Um, and, uh, and as far as kind of reflecting on these methodological issues, I, don't, I, I find that I have something of an, an allergy to it, or maybe I just don't, don't think that I particularly have much further uh, illumination to provide. There's been a lot of people who have gone over that ground yeah. Uh, a lot sometimes to very good and important effect, but um, I'm not sure that I have a ton more to offer. As far as that particular sentence goes, um, yeah, as I say, I, I don't know that it's a kind of methodological principle, but I think it's just a kind of rule of thumb I have. Um, or maybe not even that, it's just a, a personal predilection. And I think these ideas get more interesting uh, the deeper the context surrounding them is. I think there's nothing particularly uh, strange about that. I think people think that about, um, you know, they think that about the present, <laughs> right? When they get deeply interested in some political controversy going on now, they read more about it, <laughs> Yeah. right? When, you, when people try to understand what the meaning of some particular uh, either political pronouncement is, uh, they read all around it and they think about trying to position it within a broader field of, say, policy prescriptions or uh, ideological kind of currents. Um, and we do that all the time, unreflectively, just, you know, um, and even, you know, the most uh, kind of staunchly ahistorical analytic philosopher that I know, whenever they go to write on a subject, they read the entire existing literature and insert themselves and their views into a set of existing debates. And I just think that if we're interested in political thought of the past, then we're obviously going to want to do something like that in a bit maybe more of a self-conscious uh, manner than we do in our normal lives when we're trying to get up to speed on issues or understand issues. But still, I'm, I'm not sure that it's really categorically uh, or, or ontologically different. Um, and I just think um, I, I myself also just have... Uh, an interest in sort of non-canonical thinkers. Yeah. And uh, I like to kind of cast the net widely. I think that's kind of inevitably very important if you're not simply interested in high philosophical ideas, but in uh, practical political institutions. Clearly a great deal of uh, argument about those is not going to just be conducted at the level of, you know, a Hobbes or a Locke. And so if you want to really understand them, if you're interested in kind of the uh, different façon de pensée about some issue, then it just seems to me inevitable that you're going to have to read a lot of things and uh, dig into a great set of thinkers. And uh, in practice, I think that just often has the happy, happy upshot that it makes things more interesting for current reflection as well. Um, so yeah, that's... Uh, you know, I guess yeah. just my, the underlying articles of faith that I have. Uh, and that's uh, brilliant. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's leading nicely on to what I wanted to ask you next. 
So your book has been published um, last year in um, Ideas in Context uh, at CUP in close proximity to uh, Will Selinger's book on parliamentarism. Um, and even more recently, uh, Lucia Rubinelli ha has published a book in the same series on uh, constituent power. So I, I wanted to ask you what you think that these three books um, and perhaps other books you would like to um, talk about, uh, what can they tell us about the state of play in um, the history of political thought at, at the moment? Yeah, great. Um, it's a good good question. Uh, I'm, to be honest, I don't feel like I'm a great uh, diagnostician of sort of trends in the field, uh, to be honest. Um, you, I think, are probably much better at it than I, and I should commend uh, to all of the listeners if they actually want to understand what my book and Will's book is about, rather than hearing me bumble along here uh, in the midst of quarantine, they should read your excellent piece uh, about oh, thank the book. You. Um, but also, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, in the world of, you know, what's sort of ham-handedly called contemporary political theory as well, being a, um, in the politics department here. So, I, I, you know, I don't feel that I'm, and just uh, kind of temperamentally, I'm not sure that I'm great at, at sort of divining what the trends are. And then also in this case, I'm probably just a bit too close to the material to really see the forest for the trees. Um, not just with respect to my own book, but also since both Will and uh, Adam yeah. Chief are very close friends of mine. And, um, and Will's book, you know, Will, Will and I basically wrote our books um, kind of in tandem. You know, we went to grad school together and uh, we, we went through the, every, you know, phase of this process together. Um, but I guess just to speak in broad terms and to try to answer your question, I mean, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of really good work uh, being done in the field now. I think if we all survive the pandemic, uh, it'll be quite an exciting time. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons for that is that uh, though these, you know, you kind of lump the three books together, they're actually, I think, quite different. Um, and that's one of the things I like about the history of political thought is um, that I'm kind of a methodological pluralist. Um, and I think even these books that have some superficial similarities uh, have some real divergences. So just to talk briefly about them. I mean, to me, Lucia's is really a study of discrete authors over several centuries and many different national contexts. And the purpose of that in her mind is to illuminate certain truths about the language, as she says, of, of constituent power. So it's kind of a study of the uses to which a particular term or idiom have been put in these different moments, which for her are more or less represented by single authors, or at most a kind of relatively discrete set of thinkers. Now, if you take Will's book, um, which it shares some of those characteristics with Lucia's, it proceeds kind of author by author and chronologically as hers does. Uh, it involves multiple national contexts and it has this kind of long durée feel to it. Uh, but his is not a study of language in Lucia's sense. It's really just a study of a particular, I shouldn't say really just, since that's <laughs> not less than that, but it's a study of a particular set of institutional uh, arrangements. And it's a study of a constitutional program, basically, and of the different reasons why he claims this was advocated by liberal thinkers. And then if you turn to mine, uh, I think next to those two, it's it's clearly the least ambitious of the three in some ways. 
Um, long tail. Well, I mean, it's just, there's a long tail on each end. Um, but you know, my book is really just a study of the second half of the 19th century and really of like kind of three decades or so therein. Um, and it's just about Britain with, you know, some glances abroad, just sort of for the purpose of comparison and contrast. Uh, and it's not organized author by author. Uh, my book is organized by kind of schools of thought, I claim. And so I, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really that interested in kind of trying to characterize uh, thinkers as much as I am trying to classify and typologize different kinds of arguments or different rationales. Um, and, uh, and, you know, while my book is quite heavy on institutional details, and in, in that way is probably a lot like Will's, it's not really a study of um, a constitutional program exactly. It's more a study of an ideal, what, what I call the mirroring parliament or mirroring representation, and then of some different ways in which people try to justify that idea and cash it out in institutional terms. So I suppose that's, I don't know, probably not a very helpful response in your terms when you ask about the state of play. But, uh, you know, if by that you wanted me to kind of divine um, underlying tendencies or something like that in the field. But, um, I don't know, for me, one of the things I like about this discipline is just, um, you know, the amount of diversity uh, underneath sort of superficial similarity. And I think you can see that even in, in these books, which are all in the same series and all the product of, you know, similar influences and so on. So anyway, I at least uh, like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a very helpful answer. And um, I think that, yeah, thank you for being so generous about my article. I think if anyone is interested in these other books, in addition to um, Greg Conti's book, uh, there are also interviews with Willis Ellinger and Lucia Rubinelli on uh, the St. Andrews Intellectual History website. So have, have a look at those if, if you have time. Um, and returning to, uh, to you, uh, Greg, the last question I wanted to ask you is what, you, what are you working on now? To be totally frank, I'm basically uh, working on, you know, keeping, keeping my spirits up. Uh, but insofar as I am, um, uh, you know, I am managing to get some things done in the, uh, the lockdown. Um, it's basically, I've, I've been trying to write a series of articles on various aspects of John Stuart Mill's thought, um, different uh, different dimensions of it. One of one of which, uh, which hopefully should be coming out sometime soon, is um, really picks up on a lot of the themes in the book. So initially, the book um, I had planned to end the book with a chapter just about Mill, um, but I really struggled uh, with that with that task of kind of consolidation. Instead, for anyone who's who's um, looked at the book, Mill is just kind of scattered throughout. Um, and so I did try to, you know, write up a piece that um, tries to bring together and to express uh, with some degree of concision uh, how I've come to think about what, um, you know, Mill's views about democracy, representation, and parliamentary reform after all of this, this sort of uh, research. And um, then I have a couple kind of connected with that or a couple pieces that might sort of fall under the heading of liberalism and its enemies in the 19th century, weighing in on, uh, you know, some, I think, pretty um, pretty exciting debates going on now about the meaning and history of, of liberalism. 
Uh, and, uh, and as part of that, I'm kind of returning to one of my favorite figures who's um, this Victorian jurist and political commentator named James Fitzjames Stephen, uh, who doesn't appear much in my book, but who I've written some other things about and who I, for whatever reason, just find myself coming back to again and again. Uh, and um, and uh, then finally, and pro most excitingly, it looks like uh, I will be editing um, an, an installment for the Cambridge texts in the history of political thought um, series, you know, what students, you know, everywhere know as the, the blue series. And that picks up and develops some of the themes um, in, in my monograph as well. So that's going to be a collection of some of the lesser known writings of one of the kind of supporting actors in my book, uh, Albert Van Dicey. Okay. So in particular, it's going to focus on his um, advocacy of the referendum. So there's going to be a collection of his writings about democracy and the referendum. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of motivated by the fact that I think he's sort of the first great uh, Anglophone advocate of, um, of the referendum. And uh, I, you know, I'd like to make his, his texts on those uh, issues, which are mostly dispersed across a bunch of journals, though there's a little bit about it in a, a later edition of the uh, famous Introduction to the Law of the Constitution. But anyway, I'm trying to kind of assemble those and then introduce them and make them kind of intelligible and uh, accessible. Uh, so that's what I'm doing now. Okay, no, that sounds great. So uh, talking to you and hearing about all these exciting projects certainly helped to lift my spirits up uh, <laughs> today. Uh, and I'm sure that's going to apply to everyone listening as well. So th thank you so much, Greg, for your time. Uh, this was incredibly kind of you, Max. I really appreciate it.